BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and our good friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Go to Simon the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Friday, October 2nd, 2020. Uh, of course, you can be listening to this anytime. So if you are listening to some time in the f- distant future, this is what the headlines were in the, my beloved bright one, the Chicago Sun-Times. Poll packed on day one. Chicagoans line up for blocks outside a loop super site as early voting begins in the city. I'm urging absolutely everyone who listens to the show to vote. And I'm absolutely urging everyone who listens to the show to vote for Joe Biden. Oops. That was an editorial endorsement. I'm not supposed to make those. Ah, all the rules are out the books. These are desperate times, folks. Don't be stupid, all right? All right, as I do with all my distinguished guests, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce him or herself. So take it away, distinguished guest, and introduce yourself. I can't believe it. I am a bonus. I thought I heard you say that. Richard Steele, a bonus? <laughs> first first time that's ever happened to me. I've, I've never been a bonus. But it's uh, okay. You were a bonus last time, and this is uh, Richard Steele, the legendary radio man, the real deal, as I call him. Now, Richard, before we take the deep dive, I'm going to tell uh, listeners what I told you before the show. Uh, After the last time you came on the show, I got a uh, call uh, from a listener, very enthusiastic uh, fan of our interview, but she urged me that make sure the next time Richard Steele comes on, that we do some more music talk, not just political talk. And folks, you may not know this, a lot of you BEZ listeners out there just think of Richard Steele as a newsman. But what you don't know is that for years, he was a disc jockey. He knows music inside out, 1390 AM, do this off the top of my head, WVON. He had a jazz show on BEZ, and perhaps my favorite Millennium Park moment, uh, Richard and Herb Kent were the MCs for the tribute to Don Cornelius, Richard, which is a a night I will never forget until dementia overtakes me. All right, Richard. Um, you know what's what's amazing about that too is after we did that, I think uh, Don killed himself about maybe a month later, which was awful. Uh, that night in Grand Park, that was the first time that Ch- Chicago has ever honored uh, Don Cornelius. And, that's amazing, given what uh, Soul Train has meant to the nation at that point. He was overwhelmed. You know, he was not a guy given to emotion. But when we were up on the stage and uh, he was being presented with, uh, I think, uh, there was, oh, there's a street sign uh, with his name on it. And he was he was practically in tears. I was like, really? I've known him a long time. I had known him a long time. And he's always been kind of an acerbic, uh, you know, kind of, kind of, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but it would not be emotional. Uh, yeah. But that was a that was a hell of a night. It really was. 
It was a beautiful night. And by the way, Don Cornelius learned the game from the Chess Brothers. So there's no emotion. It's business. And uh, he was a master, astute businessman, Richard Steele. Uh, and, but yeah, he was over overtaking that. Someday we'll maybe do a whole show about that night. Uh, it, it had so many twists and turns and behind the scenes oh, drama. Yeah, you have no idea, but I'll tell you about it at some point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sometime enough time has passed. We can uh, uh, do the behind the scenes. Herb Kent has passed on as well. So um, why not? Let's uh, tell the real story. But so anyway, um, Linda, we're definitely going to do uh, a music segment. I'll tease it. An old newsman like Richard uh, Steele knows what I'm doing. It's about what's going on. One of the, my opinion, the greatest uh, pop album ever recorded. And then maybe a little Ella Fitzgerald talk as well. Uh, but before that, let's get to politics. And number one, uh, everybody's talking about this, uh, Richard. Uh, Donald Trump announced at one in the morning, LA, uh, excuse me, Washington time, roughly midnight here in Chicago, that he had tested positive for COVID. It was a shock coming right in the middle of uh, the campaign, coming right after the debate, coming right after his uh, appearances at fundraiser in New Jersey and at a rally in Minnesota. Um, I got two questions for you, Richard. Number one, what was your was your reaction when you heard it? And number two, do you believe it? So let's start with the first one. Talk about where you were when you got the news and how to hit you. Well, this may sound strange, but <laughs> I had to get up to pee about one thirty, two o'clock in the morning. And I always check my phone. It's just, a, you know, a habit that I, I wish I didn't have. So when I checked my phone, I had a, I had an email, or rather a text, from uh, my dentist, who's a very hip guy who's always up on everything. And so he sent this thing at one thirty in the morning about <laughs> about Trump. And I went, really? I mean, I, I could hardly go back to sleep, right? But, um, yeah, so I knew early on. As a matter of fact, later when I did get up there, my wife came uh, to shake me and she said, uh, uh, did you hear about the Trump thing? Because she, she's usually ahead of me on everything. I said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't beat Richard Steele. You just had to get up in the middle of the night. Boy, I know that feeling as well. Unbelievable. Uh, you know, but but I, you know, but I, but I said to her, you know, I, I know about it. And so. I would have been totally shocked had I not known about it. She said, guess what I just saw on television. So, but I did know. And uh, I had all kinds of thoughts about that. You asked me whether I think it, it was a fake thing or is a fake thing or not real. Yes. Nah, I don't think so. I mean, this is a, I mean, what's the benefit there? I mean, you know, Hope Hicks got it, his assistant. Uh, and mm -hmm. then, you know, she traveled on the same airplane. And, you know, a confined space like that is not a good thing. So my first thought was, how would this benefit him? Because he's a big trickster. You know, he's a con man, and he knows how to make things work when you when you go underhanded. Uh, so I thought about the possibilities, and I said, well, why would he do that? You know what I mean? Uh, my dentist had an interesting remark. He said it would be more likely that if Biden and his wife had been diagnosed positive, then Trump would have said, that's a hoax. You know, they're just yeah. trying to do the Democrats want to win the election, you know, so yeah. I, I can't I can't see why this would be a hoax. Explain to me if you think it could be a hoax. Well, OK, let me just say this, uh, Richard. I um, as a 
having covered Chicago politics for all these years, I really struggle, almost like an addict. I struggle with uh, skepticism. Okay, I, I've learned not to take at face value whatever a politician tells me. I know that's that's really cynical sounding, and I should probably seek psychological help for it. But I deal with this on a regular basis. <laughs> I agree. I I agree. I'm just being honest with you. So, uh, my initial reaction: I got a text uh, from my my oldest daughter. And she says, uh, do you b- believe it? I go, why would he be making it up? And she, and she said to get people to feel sorry for him. And I go, no, I, that's not Trump. Yeah, he doesn't care about people like that. No, I, and I, I thought about that. Yeah, I thought about that. No, I dismissed that. Yeah, I dismissed. But then uh, I had a conversation with uh, Dennis, who is the producer of the show, and he is re- a wrestling aficionado. And he was telling me that a classic move in pro wrestling is for when when one of the uh, contestants is looks like he's about to lose, all of a sudden he has a miraculous recovery and he wins. And Donald Trump, you know, he learned a lot of his tricks from rep pro wrestling. He's very involved in pro wrestling or about 10, 15 years ago. And I'm like, oh my God, could this be the oldest pro wrestling trick in the book? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. He is, he is a big wrestling fan, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, that's, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. It, that's anything's possible. You know, look, I even took it to this to this extent. I said, well, maybe this is a thing where because the election is so close, maybe he's thinking if I lose, I'm going to go to jail. So if I fake this thing with the covid and I'm incapacitated and Mike Pence has, has to take over and be president, then he can pardon me while I'm still in office, you know, because, because so, after he, after trouble, if trouble loses, you know, you might want to fit him for an orange jumpsuit. So, <laughs> I mean, this is a, this is a big deal. I mean, he's got a lot at stake here. He really does. Uh, New Yorkers salivating, waiting for him to lose. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I, I mean, that's, it's kind of far fetched, but you know, as you point out with Trump, anything is possible and he's going to do to, he's going to go to every expense, every corner of the thought process that he can in order to win. So it's yes. not below him to do that. There's no bottom when you, you know, most people reach a bottom and they say, well, how do I get out? This guy reaches the bottom and he keeps digging. You know? So what can you say? Yeah, I I'm, I'm with you hundred percent. Everything you just said. Uh, and, uh, the, the reality of prison for Donald Trump is very real. If he doesn't win this election, you're absolutely correct. Um, the revelation about his, uh, his taxes that the New York times just came out with since the last time you were on the show, Richard shows that, uh, he's about $400 million in debt. There's the feds are coming after at, for a, for a $72, a $72 million refund that they now wish they hadn't given him. Uh, who knows the conflicting re- reports he's made about how much money his income is and his expenses are. As If he's not the president of the United States, the Justice Department is free to go after him. And I believe there's a lot of lawyers in the Justice Department who would love nothing more than uh, to see the orange man wearing orange. Do you agree with me on that? Yeah, and I think it's totally different uh, when he becomes not the president because he won't have the Justice Department uh, and Barr being his personal attorneys. I mean, you know, he'll, he'll be on his own. Obviously, he can afford to hire a lot of attorneys, but 
you know, uh, I don't, I don't think that's going to help them. If you think about, uh, guys with a lot of money that, uh, you know, that, uh, don't get away. Uh, what's his name? Stein. He didn't get away. Right. Killed himself <laughs> before, uh, doing a long jail term. Uh, the one guy who did get away was a much lesser thing. The guy who owns uh, the New England Patriots, they dropped that case. So oh he's got God. a lot of money. <laughs> he got away clean, you know. So, uh, but I don't. But Trump, there's so much involved with Trump, and you know the foreign interests in terms of that money. Uh, you know, Deutsche Bank is, has said clearly that they will give up the records because they're shady. So they don't want to get into any more trouble. So he's in trouble. He's in trouble if he loses. The guy who paid what seven hundred and fifty dollars <laughs> two years in a row in yeah. federal taxes. But here's what I don't. Here's what I don't get. Help me with this. If you're somebody who is an average, and they're saying now that, uh, no offense, uh, Ben, but they're saying that the Americans who, the, the, the description of the Americans who are totally in Trump's corner are white American men, working class men. Uh, I can't, it's hard for me to believe that these guys, especially ones who've lost their jobs, and I've seen some of them interviewed on television, and they're saying they're still behind them. He's our guy. I, yeah. I, so I don't, if, if you if you were a almost billionaire and you played paid seven hundred and fifty dollars in taxes, and you're some guy working at uh, you know at a plant somewhere, or you're a teacher or a nurse, any of the people that they described, and the taxes you pay were more than he paid, how can you accept that? I don't. You know, the, he's really good at uh, he's psyched. He has psyched the public to the degree, and they they were ready for it. You know what I mean? They, after after Obama. They felt disenfranchised, and you know, I mean, they they were ready for. He came along at the right time. The timing was was great. He didn't expect to be president. He thought he'd lose. You know, this was his thing was a setup for a television network because if he lost, he was going to oh, they cheated me, blah blah blah. But I've got this new network. That, as I read, that was in the plan. So I, you know, I I don't I don't get it. I just really don't understand it. And even with the COVID nineteen. Uh, diagnosis for he and his wife, there are still going to be uh, people who will say this, you know, something is not right here. And I, and I still don't believe it. I'm still not going to wear a mask. Did you see the guy? I can't remember. I think he's an elected official. Might've been a governor on television. He took up scissors and he cut the mask. He said, the government will not tell me what to do and can't make me wear a mask. And he took a yeah. scissors, a pair of scissors, and he cut it in half. That's insanity. Yeah. You know, so how much further can you go? I, I just don't yeah. really know. Well, you yeah, know. The, lev- the level of insanity about masks, a lot of which Donald Trump promoted, uh, has overtaken just, I don't even know if we'll be ever to like, contain it if you get what i'm saying it's just this this knee-jerk uh, attitude as though somehow or they're infringing on your liberty but i'll go back to what you started saying uh richard the no the, why would someone who uh is working class or even poor uh, and pays more in taxes or as much in taxes as donald trump not be outraged and i think that that there's like this anti-authoritarian air that Donald Trump uh, emits, which is so bizarre since he is really a part of the elite in this country and has benefited from his privilege from the moment 
he came out of his mother's womb. Okay. He has been, he's one of the, the, the most, his father was wealthy. He was sheltered, went to the finest schools, but he has, he has this air about his, he says what he wants to say and it defies political correctness. I got that in quotes, Richard. And so it's all part of, yeah. I yeah. I mean, look, man. Here, here's a guy who said about uh, the NFL taking a knee. What you need to do is I'd like to be able to say the owners should say, get that son of a bitch out of here. People yeah. cheered and they thought that was great and all of that. But your point is well taken. Here's a guy who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth and a foot up his ass, but he, <laughs> but, but he, you know, he, when you compare him, Biden is a true um, American working type. I mean, he came from Scranton, Pennsylvania. His dad was just an ordinary worker. Here's a guy, unlike the Hillary thing, with, and I think this makes a big difference. He's a guy that there are some of the people that we're talking about now, they can relate to. And he, if, if he continues to make that a point, and he does, you know, I'm from a working class family. We didn't have a lot. My dad lost his job. We had to go through a lot of changes. And, um, you know, and I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I'm just a regular guy. And he, when he comes, when he says that, he doesn't come across as a fake. He comes across as a regular guy. So hopefully some of the people we're talking about now can relate to that. You know what I mean? And why they love Trump and he's a billionaire with his golf courses and all of that. I don't, I don't get that because it's certainly not them. You know, like they're not going to play on these wonderful golf courses. And uh, I saw an interview. I don't know if you saw this interview the other day with uh, with uh, Cohen. And what's the guy who was uh, press secretary for five minutes? Uh, was an associate of his. Oh, and, uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I'm blanking on his name, but he was a real character. Yeah. Uh, the Mooch. Right. The Mooch. The Mooch. Uh, well, the, Mo- the Mooch. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Scaramucci, Cohen, and the guy who wrote Art of the Deal, all three of them were on at the same time. And the Mooch said, listen, I, you know, I can't lie. He said, uh, you know, I'm sorry that I did. I went that way. He said, but, well, you know, he said the guy was fun to be around and he had a lot of money. He said, you know, so... Who gets, you know, like, you know, if you're on the uh, front seat of the Yankees game, stuff like that that we used to do it, Cohen said the same thing. He said, you know, we do stuff that was just unthinkable for any normal human being to be able to, any average human being was able to do. So Cohen said that he bought into it, you know what I mean? And he did all the things you do to stay there. And uh, Cohen said he had some money before Trump. But, you know, the, 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 the whole idea of being around Trump and, be, and all the all the glitz and glamour that went with it. And, and uh, the Mooch said the same thing. Now, the guy who wrote the book, The Art of the Deal, he said he never had any misgivings about who Trump was. When he wrote that book, he knew it then. He said, but he thought the book would sell. And he sold himself out and wrote the book uh, talking about Trump. And, you know, not necessarily in glowing terms, but enough so that uh, it made, you know, because Trump liked to read about himself and, and people thought that was interesting. But all three of these guys, it was interesting to see all three of them on at one time talking about Trump. That was fascinating. Yeah, no, there's a lot of people who uh, have regrets for the, the role they play in uh, the elevation of Donald Trump. I've heard uh, Howard Stern and David Letterman talk about this. Howard Stern and David Letterman had featured Trump on their show throughout the 90s and in the O's. And Trump would come on and promote his brand and promote whatever 
he was selling, like beat a tie, steaks, who knows? Trump's such a con artist. He was always selling something. And they would allow him access to large chunks of the population. And he used that. Uh, Richard to promote himself and then he got a TV show The Apprentice it's all history the rest is history and he used television and he used the media uh, in a way to sell a, a notion of himself that was fake and here we are now in 2020 dealing with the aftershock of his just racism and his bigotry and his hatred and and some people like Howard Stern and David Letterman have professed shame for this uh and the role that they played uh in in Donald Trump's promotion well listen to this in terms of individuals and how they respond uh, there's a friend of mine who lives in LA and we can we communicate a lot so we're talking about uh the whole Trump thing and, and the debates which we'll talk about in a minute but um there's a guy, a handyman in his building who is a, a Mexican guy. And so he didn't have this conversation with him, but another another tenant who's a good friend of, of mine, I mean, of his, said to him, he's talking to this guy about the debates. And the guy said, oh, man, listen, that was great, man. You know, like Trump kicked his ass, you know, like, hey, man, this is a tough guy, blah, blah, blah. So... Yeah. So my guy said, wait till I see this guy. You know what I mean? But you can't convince, listen, uh, I think I said this to you the last time. Life is too short yeah. to argue with a Trump supporter. Yeah. I, I'm well, with I don't, I, I don't. All right, let's talk about that debate. Uh, you've been a moderator uh, of debates. I have too, by the way, in my time, all romantic debates, nothing remotely uh, like uh, the high pressure of a presidential debate on national TV. What was your thoughts of Chris Wallace's performance? Well, you know, I've, and I've heard a lot of negative thoughts about that. But somebody online, as a matter of fact, somebody, I think on a Facebook page, something about, they said uh, uh, it should have been Mike Wallace. His dad would have done something different. Blah blah blah, and all of that. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't really buy that. Look, Trump is out of control, and so I don't care who's sitting there. It wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter. I think uh, Chris Wallace did the best he could do. Uh, I, I happen to like Chris Wallace. I think he's a fair guy for somebody who works on on, on, on Fox. I mean, he's a real journalist, and so I, I respect that. But I don't think anybody else would have done anything different if they've maintained any kind of decorum. I mean, you could have been a guy who jumps up and down and says, oh, both of y'all shut the hell up. Well, what is that? You, know, you, can't, you can't do that and get any credibility. So I, I think he did the best he could do in that situation. And I think it showed what, what Trump is really about, too, when he kept saying, Mr. President, would you please give uh, Biden a chance to answer the question? And, uh, and then when Biden, when he said, I think Trump said, uh, Maybe I should be the moderator. I mean, he totally disrespected uh, Chris Wallace, but Trump supporters, like this guy I told you about, they look at that as he's a bad mofo. You know, yeah. check what he did. You know, so, I, you know, and and he knows Trump knows how to use television, and you point that out. I mean, he really does. He knows uh, how to manipulate, how to, you know, when he was debating Hillary Clinton. That whole thing about walking, stalking, walking behind her while she was speaking, you know, like, <laughs> he knows, he knows what works. And so 
uh, I thought Chris Wallace did uh, the best job he could do. I respect him as a journalist. And uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts? I agree. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, from the get-go, I've said I don't know what in the world uh, Chris Wallace could have done. And I, I like to point out that everybody who's criticized him, they've not said what they would have done. And you had the president of the United States breaking every rule that he'd agreed to uh, while his supporters cheer him on. So the, the just all pretense that we're going to have a civilized debate that follows the rules are out the window. And it's the president of the United States. Uh, I have a hard time imagining, Richard, that a majority of the people not forget the country. I'd never believe Trump was going to get a majority of the vote in this Trump. I, I believe Biden will beat him by even a greater margin than Hillary Clinton. I'm talking about the majority of people in swing states like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania. I just cannot believe that America has descended to the level where a majority of the voters in Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania could look at Donald Trump's performance at that debate stage and say, I want this man to lead the country. I have a hard time believing that, Richard. Okay, but what do you think about this? I mean, and you, we'll talk about this. You and I discussed this before we went on. Um, a lot of the Republican Party, whether governors or the Republican, they're trying their best to suppress the votes uh, in, uh, in states that have large urban areas, like in Detroit. Uh, it's, I mean, in, in Michigan, it's like Detroit. They're trying to mm-hmm. suppress the vote because the last time around, a lot of black Detroiters did not vote at all. Yeah. And that, that was a big margin question on that. Um, the same thing uh, with uh, Pittsburgh and some other places where there's a large black population, a large minority population. The uh, the governors are trying their best to find a way to depress the vote. So I, that, I don't know what the end, end result of that is, but... What do you think about that? Uh, that scares me. And you're absolutely correct. Uh, Philadelphia, Donald Trump, he, he's being very strategic. He, he goes after Philadelphia. Why? Because Pennsylvania is an absolute crucial swing state. So he thinks he can win a majority of the white vote in Pennsylvania. But he knows, to your point, that if a large segment of black voters show up, he will lose. So what he does is he tries to undercut confidence uh, in mail by, uh, voting by mail in cities like Pennsylvania, or excuse me, cities like Philadelphia, maybe to deter people from voting. Uh, his The only strategy that Donald Trump has for winning the black vote is to suppress the black vote. He doesn't want to win the black vote by that. It's in other words, prevent enough black people to voting from voting so that he can eke out a win. So yes, it's very disturbing. The story that came out of Michigan about those two Republican operatives, we talked about this briefly, who were doing the robocalls uh, to black voters in the Detroit area, same principle. He's going to win Michigan. He's got to keep the black vote down uh, in Detroit. So yeah, that's his Hail Mary. Um, that's his the and, only chance I think he has. Go ahead. And by the way, since Maybe some people don't know what that was about, but you might explain that robocall uh, project that happened with these two guys, uh, you know, in terms of why they were calling people and what they were telling black voters. Yeah, they were, they were, they were calling, oh my God, it's so absurd. 
uh, they were calling it were robocalls saying that if you vote by mail, you could uh, possibly be committing fraud. You could be prosecuted, perhaps uh, the government to get a, a fee, a fine at the least. I, I it was an attempt to deter black voters from voting by putting the fear uh, in their minds that there was something illegal about it. And um, it is so cynical. Richard, because at the same token, during the debate, he goes, I've done more for black people than any president. You're right, right, right. Um, you know what bothers me a lot, uh, by the way, about those two guys? They have, they were under or had been under investigation from the FBI um, because they'd done, they had done some other things before. It seems like these guys didn't have any fear that they'd be caught. And, uh, you know, because, because, because if they're found guilty of this, uh, they could do 20 years. Uh, you know, and that probably won't happen, but they could do a lot of time. Uh, they tried to, uh, they tried to uh, start a rumor about uh, Pete Buttigieg and who he was dealing with at that point. I mean, everybody knows that there was a man is gay. He said he was gay, so not a problem. But they were trying to come up with something on him. So according to the news reports, uh, they had a guy who was willing to say something really bad about his relationship or a relationship with Buttigieg. And then they, at the last minute, the guy didn't even know Buttigieg, but at the last yeah. minute, the guy, the guy backed out. But that's how awful these guys are. Yeah. And I hope, to see, I hope to see them go to jail this time around, you know? I really do. Yeah, they can join Trump in the cell. All right, let's move on and close with a discussion of music. Uh, and uh, you were the one who suggested this topic, and I love it. We probably could do a whole show about this. But Rolling Stone came out with a new number one album, a new number one ranking ranked album of all time, and that album is "What's Going On" by Marvin Gaye. What's Marvin your Gaye. Thoughts about yeah about what's going on in the album. Listen, the first time it, this, like the radio station I was working for at that time, I think it was WGRT way back in the day, and from the moment we played that it was 1971, and the first time we put a track on, we said this is this is it, this is the bomb, you know what I mean? And that was the response across the board. And the interesting story about that is Barry Gordy did not want to put that out. He thought, he said, look, we're, we're, we're the music of young America. We don't want to get into social issues. And he thought Marvin Gaye was somebody who the women loved and he was a love guy. And he said, so, you know, I mean, I interviewed Barry Gordy and he said to me, but he, he said it in his book and to other people, but I interviewed him uh, about his book and he, and I asked him, I said, well, uh, about your feelings about that. And he said he just didn't buy into it and uh, he was not going to release it. And I think uh, as the story goes, it was a guy who worked for him in the upper echelons of the company who I think Barry was out of, out of the country. So anyway, he released the single What's Going On and the response was so incredible uh, in two days that when Barry got, got hold, because he was really, first he was really pissed but when he saw the numbers, he said, oh, look, damn, this is, you know, I mean, this is, <laughs> wow. Because it's usually about the money, right? And so yeah. um, this was incredible. The, the album itself is amazing. I mean, the issues that Marvin touched on, the, you know, the ecology, the inner city, uh, police brutality, uh, it's just, and it was, it was a concept album, which was brand new for R&B uh, and pop where, it, you know, the music was continuous. And when they cut singles, they had to find a place to, you know, cut the track from 
away from the next track. Um, but it was a, a concept album that just, it was just too amazing. And the thing about it is everybody bought into it. I mean, you know, there wasn't a situation where people said, some people said, yeah, it's okay. Other people said it was great. Everybody, and that includes black stations and pop stations, you know, I mean, it was like immediate. So it's amazing that uh, that particular uh, recording of What's Going On replaced uh, the Sgt. Pepper album by the Beatles as yeah. as, the num- as the number one. You know, uh, Rolling Stone lists their 500 best albums of all time. And uh, at this point, Marvin Gaye is number one. <laughs> well, this, I mean, this is obviously such a subjective thing anyway. Uh, why Sergeant Pepper was ever ahead of what's going on, uh, I can't buy into that. Um, I I mean, we're talking about a, a, a certain kind of music, popular music, I guess. I called it pop, but it's not, I don't know if that's fair to, it's popular music as opposed to like, let's say jazz. Um, I, uh, I would probably... Personally, just speaking for me, would put songs in the key of life ahead of what's going on. I as and I love both albums. It's it's not diminishing one over the other, Richard. I just uh, songs in the key of life by Stevie Wonder, which came out a few years after what's going on. It's just I just he just blew me away with the, the diversity, the range that he showed in that album of different types of of songs and different styles, but. Let me tell you a story. About, let me let me tell you a quick story about songs in the key of light. Uh, I was a program I was a program director at that point, and uh, songs in the key in the key of life came out, and and so Stevie Wonder was here in Chicago, doing making the rounds of radio stations. So uh, somebody called me and said, you know, Stevie is on over at WLS. WLS is a big rock station in town at that point, and I said, uh, okay. Uh, that's cool. And then he made a stop at WVON and we were not on the schedule and because uh, no, we had nobody called us. And I, I only knew that he was on these other stations because somebody called me. So I called L.A. and I raised hell as a program director and reminded them that this station at that point, which it was WJPC, was owned by Johnson Publishing Company, Ebony Jet. Now, you don't want to mess around and piss us off, you know what I mean? So the, so we got a call from uh, the promotion guy who was on the road with Stevie, and he said, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be by in about an hour, <laughs> you know? So, uh, so and as a matter of fact, at WLS, the record was not even being played. Uh, they talked about it. And it was on, you know, the radio stations in back in those days, sometimes like WLS had two charts. WLS, WLS had a chart that they played from on the air. And then they had another chart or an additional chart that went into record stores. Uh, you were listed, but you weren't being played on the radio. But LS was so big that even that was a plus. So they, the Songs of the Key of Life was on their list, but it wasn't being played. And that really pissed me off because we were wow. we were playing we were playing the hell out of it. You know what I mean? So, uh, so anyway, that's kind of the story of that. I was, uh, you know, I was totally pissed about that. Did you you interview Stevie? Did you yourself interview him? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. And he, he was Stevie to his credit was very slick. He said, listen, he said, you know, uh, because I said to him, I said, you know, I thought we were not going to be able to talk to you. He said, well, you know, listen, uh, 
you're all you you guys will always be on the list. He says we like to save the best for last. I went, oh <laughs> shit, you know. He was, <laughs> I'll never forget that. I will never forget that. You know? so, <laughs> he thought he he thought that in the drive over. What am I going to tell you? Unbelievable, unbelievable. Uh, you know. So yeah, uh, that was my memory of that. And yes, it was an absolutely great, great album. No question. Yeah, it's uh, but there's one line. Go back to uh, what's going on. So I liked it as uh, when it came out. I liked the song. I liked the album a lot. But that was before my. Uh, I went through this. Uh, I've, I know I've mentioned this before. I went through a very uh, strong uh, marijuana phase, uh, Richard Steele, and uh, so I remember I was really high one night. And it was the guy I was smoking with. This is about 1974 or so. He said, here's what you got to do. Listen to what's going on with the headphones on. And so I put the headphones on. And I don't want to imitate Marvin Gaye because I would destroy. But you know that little, like, he does that little scat singing and what's going on? Yeah, yeah. You know, Richard, someday... You don't have to even smoke reefer. Just put the headphones on. <laughs> yeah, you know, like it was it was ethereal, I think is the word I'm looking for. Uh, in terms of, you know, with the headphones on and, and uh, the great production. By the way, a lot of the guys he used were jazz guys. Uh, Motown did that. They called these guys the Funk Brothers. Uh, they never got, they, they, at, la- at a later point, they got recognized. But the good thing about using these guys is that they would add stuff, uh, uh, suggestions to the production that was that, that suggestions that were very helpful because they were jazz guys, and so they knew yeah. they knew music. They, you know, they were actual musicians. But Marvin Gaye, you're right. If you, it, it was kind of ethereal, if you don't, just let the whole thing play all the way through and just kick back and uh, take a puff and <laughs> and you were cool. <laughs> yeah. No. Oh my God. That beep, 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 beep. Oh, God, I can hear it right now. Uh, Martin Gay, what's going on? I'm glad it's number one. Number two should be Songs in the Key of Life. Let's just call it for what it is, all right? Uh, and maybe every every month they can rotate, and Songs in the Key of Life can go to number one. Very good. Uh, we'll uh, work it that way. All right, we'll close with this. Speaking of jazz, Ella Fitzgerald. I'm a huge Ella. I know you are, too. Everybody loves Ella Fitzgerald. And uh just saw in the New York Times that um, – a recording has come out. They discovered a documentary, the concert, sort of the lost Berlin tapes. Uh, Richard, talk about the significance of of her Berlin uh, concert from the early 60s. Well, it was so incredible uh, because she, you know, uh, obviously that's where Mac the Knife uh, came out of her mouth <laughs> because she couldn't remember the lyrics. And she says that in the song. I don't and remember the lyrics, but she made it so. She was so, her she was so uh, artistic, and her, she her knowledge of jazz and scat singing was so great that people loved it. I mean, it was it was I loved it. It was absolutely amazing because her voice was such that even when she was singing the words, I don't know the lyrics. It was like a song, you know what I mean? Yeah, and so. <laughs> that, it, it, it became uh, it became a standard in jazz, but it also became a big pop hit too, which uh, you know was uh, something for its for its time, and especially with jazz because you know jazz records did not become pop hits, uh, but that was kind of a pop hit that got played across, across the board on lots of different stations, primarily you know easy listening stations, but 
but it was just a fantastic. She's an, she was an incredible performer with an amazing voice. I have a very short story uh, about Ella Fitzgerald. I never met her, but I did interview Tommy. Tommy Flanagan was her was Tommy Flanagan was her uh, pianist and musical director for about uh, he was with her three or four years. Then he left. He came back and he was with her for the next ten years. So he was with her for a very long time. I did interview him, and he told me, he said she was she was so incredibly popular that wherever they played uh, overseas or here in the states, but especially overseas, when you think, well, they, you know, maybe they don't know her as well. Well, they over, they knew her better, you know, overseas. So he said that wherever they played on the marquee, the only thing there was her first name, Ella. Mm. That was enough. And he said it was amazing. He said how she was treated, she was treated treated like a queen wherever they performed, wherever, you know, whatever hotel it was, she was given the best accommodations or top of the line. He said the only place that he, it was top, top of the line in this place too, but the only place he really didn't like at all was when they were in Russia. He said he, that was, it was just, it was bleak. <laughs> he said there was no warmth at all. I don't mean just the temperature, but the people were incredibly enthusiastic when Ella was singing. But he just didn't like the whole the whole thing about Russia. But he said every place they played, they just up on the marquee. All it said was Ella, and yeah. he said that was always amazing to him. So uh, he was a great guy too, laid back, great piano player, and uh, so that was my one experience close to Ella. Close to, well, it was the closest I ever came to Ella Fitzgerald, which is not very close at all. I think it was mid 80s. I can't remember the exact year. Uh, she did an outdoor performance across the street from where Millennium Park is, where you uh, and, and Don Cornelius were at the, at the band show. And I think it may have been uh, during the Harold Washington years. R- Richard, everyone and their mother was at this concert. I mean, they filled up that field it was free concert oh oh uh, i went to that yeah i went i was there yeah 485 was it i forget exactly and that was i don't even remember if she was it was just like there's ella <laughs> i was so far <laughs> back sitting in a chair you know what i mean a lawn chair but it's like that's as close as i ever came to ella fitzgerald <laughs> you remember she was that amazing. concert huh yeah yeah, yeah that was absolutely you know uh, uh so, there's a documentary out that um, they interviewed some people. So this came out years ago, not the latest one. But they were talking about she was she had she was on the road so often and and so uh, so long and you know very few breaks in between. Uh, she had spent like almost fifty two weeks on the road uh, because she was in such great demand. So when she got sick. Uh, the people in the documentary were saying that, you know, she really got sick and her eyesight was bad. And then she got, she really got sick and couldn't really do any concert work. And uh, somebody who was attending her said that she would wake up in the middle of the night, uh, not quite fully all there and say, well, what, what time was the next gig? What time do we leave? What are we going to get there? You know what I mean? When, at a point when she had stopped performing, but it was so ingrained in her whole persona that it was like a performance hit the stage hit the road get on a plane and uh do your thing yeah yeah that was her life uh the great ella fitzgerald 
Uh, Richard, we're out of time. I want to thank you uh, very much. We'll do it again next month. Politics and music. Uh, and uh, don't forget, next time you listen to that, what's going on, put the headphones on. Smoke whatever you want to smoke, all right? What's going on? <laughs> all right, dude. Have a great day, dude. Take care. Stay safe and sound. That's Richard Steele. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everyone.